If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for March 12, 2017. This is the program where we talk about the news of the week and the events of my often bizarre life and where we provide you with a two-hour oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. In hour number two, we like to be joined by a guest who has something interesting to say. We've been very lucky this year with our guests so far. I had a guest scheduled this week that at the last moment was not able to make it for reasons that are very interesting and newsworthy, which I discuss in hour number one of this podcast. But luckily a friend of mine who is an outstanding guest has been willing to jump in on late notice. We had had him scheduled for later on in the month, but he's such a good guy. He was willing to join us uh, this week and very much looking forward to speaking to him. He is Matt Lewis, a senior columnist for the daily beast, a CNN political commentator and author of the book, Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots. Matt Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John, good to be here. Uh, Well, I have uh, done a couple of interviews with you on your podcast, and uh, we have an interesting, I think, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, political relationship in that we we have differing views on things we're both conservatives we're kind of in different pews of the same church and as we all know in the era of trump that the church has been rather scattered <laughs> uh you know it, it's basically where you stand on trump now is, is the modern equivalent of asking uh, which sect of christianity you belong to because uh, you know there's very different flavors and one of the things that fascinates me about you, Matt, is I'm not 100% sure what your flavor or your sect or whichever metaphor you want to use here is is on Trump. How would you describe yourself as a conservative and your view of President Trump? Well, I'm, uh, you know, maybe cautiously optimistic is too strong. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm very cautious is right. I'm I'm very concerned about his authoritarian tendencies. I don't think he's a conservative. And uh, so I have real concerns about him. Having said that, I do think that there's a lot of range in, in terms of what this administration could be like. I think this could be a complete disaster. But I also think there's a chance that some good things could come from it. For example, Neil Gorsuch, 
That's a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. You know, if Hillary Clinton had won, that wouldn't be the case. We wouldn't be having someone like a Neil Gorsuch. So some good things could come from it. I try to call him like I see him. If he does something good, I'll say it. But um, I've so I, I don't want to be a reflexive, reflexively critical of him. Right. But I would say more often than not, I have found myself to be criticizing him rather than praising him. See, I think you and I are, are even more similar on this than than probably perceived or, or even I realized until you just gave that answer. I, although, on, as I am on most things, I'm a little bit more militant in my language. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're you're a guy who um, likes to get along with people. I, I don't really care about that. <laughs> um, I think it's temperament. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that that kind of thing is hardwired. I think it it probably goes back to childhood. I mean, <laughs> so I'm going to blame you know, like my Reagan mother. And Bill Clinton were both uh, supposedly you know, the sons of alcoholics, and they were kind of the peacemakers. Right. Um, I don't know why I'm, you know, like if I tried to be Ann Coulter, I don't think I could pull it off. Like, right. Obviously, it would be a smart career move, you know. Right. But I don't think I could do it. So I figure, though, to thine own self, be true. Well, and I respect that, and it's one of the reasons why I like you, but. It's in, in a weird way, you've carved out your own real estate because I see you as almost like the bridge between the never-Trumpers and the Trump cult. Would you, uh, would you agree with that assessment? I mean, I think, that would, that's, I think that's fair, um, and it's not a bad space to be in. Um, it, it's certainly nothing I could have planned, you right. know, like strategically or if I thinking like this is the perfect, you know, niche to fill. Right. Um, but I do think that that's, you know, it's probably a pretty, pretty fair place to be. Um, and I see it, you know, it, I see it in pretty stark uh, because there are times when I'm on CNN and I'll be up against, um, you know, Kelly McEnany or, or <laughs> Jeffrey Lord. And there are times where I'm like criticizing them. And, like, I can't believe you're saying that. And like, they're defending the indefensible. And then there are other times where I'm completely on their side and mm-hmm. going up against liberals. So um, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, time because, it, you know, it's, it's really not black and white. You know, when I first signed up to do this, I just assumed that I would be joining a team and I would be like on basically on the right on the conservative team all the time. Right. Um, but as we redefine what it means to be a conservative and as what, what it means now apparently means to be a Trumpian. Right. Um, you know, things things get get shaken around a bit. I want to ask you about the definition of conservatism in the era of Trump, but you said something really important. Uh, I don't even know if you realized it in your response there about the niche or doing uh, creating your own persona on purpose for the reasons of career advancement. Uh, what, what, give me without. I mean, I know you're not the kind of guy to name names. That's more my thing. But but <laughs> but how common, uh, especially among the right, is it for a right wing pundit to create their own persona? almost like they're creating a character for the purposes of career enhancement in your experience, Matt. Well, I, so I think that most of the people that I, that I hang out with, like Mary Catherine Hamm, um, you know, um, people that are sort of what I would consider to be serious commentators, Ben Domenech, they don't do this. Um, but I think it's very common in the world of, like, the Ann Coulters and the Sean Hannity's and the Mark Levins and the Rush Limbaugh's. Um, I think very clearly they have decided that this is a business 
and that um, you know, there's really no new room for nuance. You you have to have a brand. You own a brand. You own a niche, and um, and I think that you know it's it's sort of market tested, right? So like they're getting immediate feedback in terms of ratings, and I think the difference is like I've never I don't look at metrics. Um, I don't really know how many people like listen to my podcast or read my stories or watch me when I'm on TV. I just try to tell the truth as I see it, but um, but I do think there are other people who are much more <laughs> much more rich than I am. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> who figured out that it's like smart business to like fill a certain brand to to to, to think of it in, in more business terms. Like, see, this goes back to me years ago. Um, like a lot of I'm like a failed artist. Like a lot of people who end up in politics. Um, you know, I, I played in, in musical bands and stuff, and, and I'm, I'm like a Generation X guy. So even though I'm a conservative, I still kind of have that ethos that the worst thing you can do is be a phony. Right. And that it's all about that, like, authenticity is, is what we should be striving for. So, like, that's kind of where I come from. I think it's maybe a product of uh, partly of my times, partly of my upbringing. So would you agree then, Matt, that there's an inverse correlation between one's authenticity as a conservative commentator and the size of one's bank account. Yes, I do think that it's possible to um to be authentic and to have a good career, a long a long career and to be respected and to be successful, but the big money, the big money is for selling out. Oh yeah. Clearly. Yeah, much like in music, as, you, as you've yeah, already alluded. Totally, yeah. Actually, there is a parallel. And I would also say that I think the game I'm playing, to the extent I'm playing any game, is a much better long-term game. Um, you know, you could cash... You know, Look, there are people like Rush Limbaugh who parlayed this into decades, but, but by and large, I think that a lot of the people who kind of chase the big money and sell out, they they become like the flavor of the day or whatever a fad. Well, Whereas, I'll tell you what. What we're seeing now is going to be a good test of that of that, yeah, totally. of that synopsis on your part or that theory on your part, Matt. By the way, you mentioned uh, McEnany and, and Lord, uh, two very huge Trump supporters on CNN that you occasionally battle with and occasionally you support. What would happen? <laughs> what would happen behind the scenes at CNN if either McEnany or Lord ever truly criticized Donald Trump about anything? I think that it w- I think it would be fine. Um, no, but let me what- just say, well, I'll give you an example. So first of all, I think they're both um, really smart, decent people, good okay. people, um, which um, which is cool, which which is good. Like I, you know, you might not know that if you're, if you're sort of just watching on TV. Sure. Um, but the other night I was on with um, oh the name escapes me. Uh, uh, anyway, a, a prominent Trump supporter. Okay. And um, and he over it was over the Obamacare replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically called it like he saw it and said that like this is a disaster waiting to happen. We should like scrap this bill and go back and wait, and and it was received very well um, on air. So I think there's a lot of room for. But that's not. But to be fair, Matt, that's to, to, to be fair. That's not a direct 
uh, uh, criticism of Trump himself. I mean, in logical terms, it would be because Trump's supporting the bill. But somehow we were already we're already seeing this. And I want to get to this topic. We're already seeing this bizarreness. Uh, Breitbart.com is the perfect example True. where, where <laughs> they're criticizing the bill, but they're not criticizing Trump. So, yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's a fair point. It's Malcolm Ryan care, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it is truly fascinating, although also very frustrating, to see the, the lens to which and the ability that Trump supporters have to do mental gymnastics to avoid criticizing their king. And, uh, and it's really, it is remarkable. So that's why I mentioned, I, I was just curious how much laughter there would be behind the scenes if, if we finally found the issue where McEnany or, or Lord. Uh, and by the way, I agree. I think both of them are smart people. Yeah, and, no, they, they're and good and good people too. Very and nice. People. And I, I think McEnany would be tremendous if she was ever on the right side instead of being a, uh, you know, Trump clan, uh, uh, cult member because, um, <laughs> you know, she's very, very good. I think she's better than Kellyanne Conway myself. I mean, I, I've, she's even convinced me on a couple of things that I thought were it was impossible that the uh, with regard to Trump, but. But it, it is it is remarkable um, the the lens to which that Trump supporters of all types will go to continue to support him and and this health care bill is a perfect example of that so why don't we talk about that for a second the news of the week obviously that was the big news was the the rollout of this uh, Obamacare alleged replacement and, um, and supposed repeal although it's not really technically a repeal what is Matt Lewis's general take on the bill itself. Well, I think it's a disaster waiting to happen. I really do. I think it's, you know, <clears throat> the only people who like this bill are either Donald Trump apologists or Paul Ryan apologists. I mean, if you're a free market conservative, you hate it because it's Obamacare light. If you are a liberal, you hate it because it's going to cover fewer people. Um, if you're a Democrat, you hate it just reflexively because you don't want to give Donald Trump a win. I think it's bad policy. I think it's bad politics. I think health care is basically like a land war with Asia. It's a bad idea to own health care. I, I see um, it. It's funny you make that analogy. I see it as, a, as, as Afghanistan. No one's ever gone into Afghanistan and, and come out clean, ever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly right. Like, this is a, it's a thankless and needless. Like, and, and to make this your first, like, your first thing... They have no idea that it's – I can't believe the naivete of people. I mean, Paul Ryan's obviously a smart guy. Tom Price is obviously a smart guy. But the naivete to tackle this um, – and, and interestingly, I think it might even be better for them if it fails. Like, if this thing is implemented, it's going to be a disaster. This is a horrible bill. Um, you talk about the death spiral, the potential for the death spiral with Obamacare. What do you think happens once we get rid of the mandate? Right. <laughs> if you still have to cover sick people by law, as Donald Trump wants to do, you can't get rid of the, you can't get rid of the pre-existing condition clause, right? right? right. If you're forced to cover sick people, right. but you can't force healthy young people to sign up, you're, it's done. How does that work? It, it, it can't. But it by can't. the but by the way, Matt, though to your your point at the at the beginning of your your last statement, nobody knew how complicated healthcare was. Now, yeah, right. Because the president told us that it must be true. No, but right. no, nobody knew him like a week ago when he, he said that. Right. He was yeah. like, I had no idea this is so complicated. Yeah. I mean, in, in all seriousness, to me, that's a great example of how desensitized we all are to Donald Trump, because if any other president had made that statement, 
That would be that would be the only thing anybody in America would know about his presidency so far. But it's like a hundredth on the list of insane comments that he's made. So in a way, he he benefits from his own insanity because we don't. Right. We're not even. Well, think of it if, if if Barack Obama had said that. Oh you know, my what gosh! Would, what would the conservative you know media be? <laughs> oh well, the, uh, that is one of the many things that has driven me nuts, and I think you as well is how our side has been exposed as complete and total hypocrites because the things that we would have gone after Obama for if he if, if he had done the same things that Trump has done or said the same things that Trump has done, that list is voluminous already, isn't it? It's, um, I have to say, like, the biggest awakening of my life has been to see how conservatives are. Because, like, I'm from a really rural background, my dad was a prison guard, and one of my first memories is him taking me to the polls when he voted for Ronald Reagan. And I loved, I still love Reagan. Um, I, I'm a, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm a Reaganite more than a Republican, by, easily. Um, and I, I grew up believing that Republicans basically had all the answers and Democrats were messing everything up and that Republicans were really good people, decent people, conservative. Like, why, you know, if you wanted to be, you know, the, uh, there's no smart reason to be a conservative unless you really believe it. Because if you wanted to make right. money, get chicks, be popular, <laughs> you'd be a liberal, right? Of course. And the, But I'm telling you the awakening I had when I got to Washington and realized that about 50 percent, and maybe I'm being generous here, of the people in the movement, you know, the, the conservative movement are frauds and shysters. Oh, and then to see, um, you know, that this this healthcare plan. Even I sort of had more faith that, like, well, Paul Ryan's a smart guy. He's a right. budget expert. He's been in Congress for you know decades. Um, you know, Price is a doctor. Like, surely they have this figured out. You know, they're gonna. Right. They've had six years. They're gonna be ready. No. <laughs> No, not, not even close. Well, by the way, I think you are being generous on your 50% of the conservative movement being full of frauds and shysters. Uh, in my experience, it was higher than that, and it was shocking to me. I mean, I didn't have the same, uh, quite, a, quite a similar background to yours, but you know, I was in broadcasting from the beginning and actually started in sports. Oddly enough, bizarrely, because I didn't think I was smart enough to deal in politics. I had no idea how <laughs> stupid people in politics actually are. But but that's another story for another day. The, the point of this story is that when I got truly involved in it, and specifically when I did my, my documentary film about the 2008 election, Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected, and I did the, the interview with Sarah Palin that, that made ridiculous amounts of news and all that stuff, I was truly shocked. And I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say how I naive I was at the time. Uh, as to just how corrupt the entire conservative movement is. That it is not, the cause is irrelevant. It's all about uh, self-gratification. It's all about the bottom line, making money, keeping your, your place within the totem pole of, of uh, TV guests, for instance. It's cutthroat. Yeah. It's, it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. Uh, the movement and the truth mean almost nothing. And uh, and it was really distasteful, and it's one of the many reasons why I, I've made some of the decisions that I have to kind of get out of it. But um, but I, I think you're being, as, as usual, you're being accurate, but but maybe a little too fair <laughs> in your your assessment of, of the of the well, right. I was, I was really blessed. So for I worked for four years uh, at a uh, for a great guy named Morton Blackwell, okay. who runs a, a group called the Leadership Institute, and he is one of the good ones. And in fact. 
uh, he has these laws of the public policy process, and one of them is a well-run movement takes care of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, which is to say that if someone has a documentary, you should help them promote it if they're on your team. See, but the um, left, but see, my view of this man is that the left is able to do that not because they're better people, uh, but because they have an embarrassment of riches on their side. See, I yeah. think I think that the core difference here is that on our side. Because the vast majority of the media and academia and entertainment and all that is so far left, we have a scarcity of resources on our side. And I I think that that scarcity of resources creates perverse incentives for people. You see what I'm saying? Do you agree with that? Yeah, totally. Look, we could see it happen at the macro level with the economy. I mean, when when people are feeling rich, they're much more generous. They're much more in favor of, say, like – welcoming refugees or immigration or whatever but when people are feeling poor and they're you know they're their piece of the pie if you get a bigger piece of the pie they don't get any pie then they start to hoard you know <laughs> they, right. they're no longer generous and i think that's uh, at the micro level what you see in the conservative movement they um they don't have the resources and so if if you make it in the door if you get famous then you need to keep other people from taking your gig Oh, yeah. And by the way, that's part of why a lot of people were very happy to see Milo get uh, dethroned. You know, I mean, not that you know, his his space was rather unique, but but there's no there's there's no sense of trying to support the team member. You're actually happy when someone one of your team members gets injured because you move up a notch. Uh, I mean, that's the way these most of the yeah. uh, the conservative, quote unquote, leaders look at this. But and, and, and of course, this is really important because, as you and I have talked about previously on your podcast, this set the scene for Donald Trump. I, I truly believe that this was the foundation on which Trump either understood or just got really lucky or maybe a little bit of both, uh, that he could pull off this coup d'etat that he did with the conservative movement and the Republican Party. But before we go in too deeply into that, I want to go back to health care for a second. Be- and, I, and I'm very curious as to your take on this, because youth, youth said a couple of things that I, I want to amplify. One, you think this is a disaster waiting to happen. And then two, that it might be better if this whole thing fails. And Trump uh, has apparently told people that he is now willing to primary dissenters in the House of Representatives. He, he so badly wants this bill passed within the House that he's willing to threaten to primary any Republican who doesn't go along. And my first thought about that is, wow, um, first of all, talk about not giving a damn about the team because you're, you're setting up a real good possibility for the Democrats to take the House. But let's not even go that far. I think he's delusional because in order to do that, you need an opponent. And who are these Trump rubber stamp congressional candidates that he's going to recruit? Who are these people? Are unemployed uh, middle-aged white guys with with Make America Great red hats on, with with no experience, no nothing. And by the way, what's their position? How are they going to attack these hardcore, you know, Freedom Caucus conservatives? Because they all these Freedom Caucus people have voted numerous times to repeal Obamacare, so they're not going to be able to say that this guy you know, is a cuck and doesn't want to repeal Obamacare, vote for me because I'll be a full rubber stamp for Donald Trump. How's that going to work? To me, Matt, Trump seems to think that his movement, to the extent it exists, and there's no question he has a cult, but he seems to think that his magic is transferable 
to other people. And it's not because he's a celebrity. He's seen as super rich, the whole, you know, the whole persona. That's all. That is the basis of his magic to the cult. Do you, do you agree with my assessment that this threat of primarying the conservative members of the House who don't go along with this Obamacare light is delusional? Well, first of all, I think it's untested. We, I, I do agree with you that a lot of Trump's success is due to his celebrity, and it's not, it's not, it is unique to him, and it's not, it's not transferable unless he puts in the time and effort. I mean, if he decided that he wanted to take out, um, I don't know, uh, it would probably be somebody in the House, right? They're up every two years. Right, but and, he, and he went to the district sure. and campaigned for somebody and attacked somebody on Twitter and turned them into a liberal by this new definition of what it means to be a liberal, which is to oppose Donald Trump. Right. Uh, then, I, you know, I think, yes, it would have an impact. Um, but that's but, one person. See, right. See, could you could – you, could you multiply that and do it on a mass scale? No. And would it be worth his time to like no. to, to go on a venge, vengeance tour? You know, it's a bluff or, at best. It's yeah. a bluff at, at, at best. And um, and and to your second point, you know, I actually think that, and this goes against something that uh, Senator Tom Cotton uh, said on the morning shows today, where he thinks we're gonna we might lose the House uh, because of this bill that will never pass. The Senate, and I didn't quite understand his logic because I'm I, I I'm where I'm where where I think you are, which is the best scenario here politically. I'm talking is yeah. for this to pass the House, get all those guys off the hook. They repeal, you know, led, they did what Trump wanted. They allegedly repealed, although they really didn't uh, Obamacare. They allegedly replaced it, but there's none of the blowback because it never becomes law and it dies in the Senate. Isn't isn't the Senate kind of like? going to jump on the hand grenade and make sure that everybody's safe here. Isn't that the best scenario? Is that what you're talking about? I think the best scenario is that it doesn't become law because... Well, that's what I'm saying. A, yeah, it's a bad bill. And interestingly, it actually hurts Trump voters <laughs> more right. more than a, more than Hillary voters. Um, and it's a bad law. And, and you don't want to own health care. I mean, you know, it's better to let Obama own... Obamacare than to than to sort of own it. Um, so yeah, I think the best case scenario is probably that it fails. Now, here's the thing: the um, the notion is in politics, if you try to push for your first big piece of legislation and it fails, that's an embarrassment. You know, you've been rejected. Mm-hmm. I say, phooey, um, to use a word that Tom Price used today on TV. Abandonment is a very underrated <laughs> political move in politics. You know, right? People always want to double down, um, and and but when you have something that's bad, it's better to just let it go. This is a disaster waiting to happen. The best thing for Trump to do is not to fight for this, to let it die quickly, do tax reform. Um, do you know, Trump could change the subject with one tweet. And get the media talking about something else other than health care. You mean like Obama's so, wiretapping of him or something like that? There you go. He could say something crazy, and all of a sudden uh, the media would be onto that, and they wouldn't be talking about Obamacare fail, Obamacare repeal fail, failing. Mm-hmm. Well, let, one last thing on health care. 
Because, see, in the big picture, what I find, uh, there's a several things I find fascinating. One, I, I, I think that conservatives trying to to create an Obamacare light uh, is essentially a situation where they're trying to make two plus two equal five. I mean, the math just simply doesn't add up. They're, they're taking the Edsel and, yeah. and they're, they're basically redoing the exterior and they're removing one of the wheels and they think yep. they're going to run better. Um, it just doesn't work that way. But there's two elements of this that I think conservatives seem to have forgotten. You know, um, I'm a big believer that uh, that when you go down, when you start down a path, that uh, something really dramatic has to happen for that path to be reversed, because that's just the way of humanity. And to me, once we allowed Barack Obama to be reelected, there was never any realistic chance of of repealing Obamacare and truly reversing it, because now the country has accepted that that's the norm that this is a right. right. This is a right yep. now. And so it's too late, is it not, to go back? Well, I think that's exactly right. So Barack Obama, even if Obamacare gets repealed, he actually won the war, which is that it is now the an accepted premise that it is the responsibility of the government to make sure people get health care. Once you accept that premise, as, as, as Donald Trump does, right, he says that right. people cannot be excluded if they have a pre-existing condition. Once you accept that notion, right. now you're in the business of who can, give, who can give people the most, who can do it better, who can do it more efficient, um, who, you know, who can manage this, this, this entitlement. It's now an entitlement. Who can manage it better? Right. That's the problem, right? Because now that's not that that is by definition no longer a free market system. Um because in a free market system people, you know, there's competition but people also could choose not to have it or some people just couldn't maybe can't afford to have it. Right. So, you know, I think that that that's where we're at. Politically Republicans realize that the free the true free market option is unpalatable and unrealistic. So they're basically playing in the Democrats' paradigm right. and just trying to do a slightly better version. Um, but honestly, I think it's going to be a worse version. Yeah, there's so many different analogies you can make, but um, I, don't, I don't know how much of a sports guy you are. I think you're, you, you like sports, right? I mean, so yeah. if you're, if, it's kind of like if uh, there was a football team that was running exclusively a pass offense and doing horribly with it. And another uh, coaching staff took over that was exclusively about the run, but they weren't allowed to change their personnel. <laughs> right. And, and then, by right. the way, and their contract was only for two years, right? Yeah. Because that's what Congress is. So, so you have a coaching staff with a two-year contract, and now they have all past personnel, but their philosophy is run. How the hell are they going to make that work? <laughs> There's... Yeah, and they can't. And that's, and that's what I do. You know, so I wrote a piece. The reason... I had a head start on this because I look. I think Obamacare is bad, and I can just tell you personally, it has negatively affected my family in terms of premiums going up and deductibles going up, mm -hmm. and it's been very bad. So I I tried to write a piece in January at the Daily Beast that was this is how Republicans can fix Obamacare, and I started calling all of these 
conservative health care, health policy experts who had helped me do some coverage of Obama of the Obamacare rollouts. These are really smart people, and none of them would come out and tell me that it was a bad idea, this repeal and replace. But, um, but I just spent hours on the phone asking them questions, trying to understand, like, okay, so instead of a mandate, we're going to have tax rebates, and that's like incentivizing coverage. And so either, maybe there could be a short window of time. You can't deny people who have pre-existing conditions, but you could have a one-time amnesty. And, like, you know, I really got in the weeds on this. And I spent hours and actually days on the phone. At the end of it, I came to the conclusion <laughs> that this could not work. Right. And it was – I wanted to write a piece. I wanted to write the piece. <laughs> this is how Republicans can fix Obamacare. And, you, could, and you couldn't find an answer. And at the end of talking to all of these experts – for hours, my conclusion was it cannot be done, and this is a, a disaster waiting to happen. Well, but who knew it was so complicated, Matt? Exactly. But who knew? <laughs> All right, now, but just one last other thing on, on health care. See, I, 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 my point was that Obama's reelection basically cemented in the minds of America that this is the way things ought to be, that government runs health care. In the reverse, in order for there to be any chance of us ever truly repealing it, doesn't it have to don't we have to allow it to go through its full death spiral and be a true complete and total disaster and accepted as such by the American people well I think that's a good argument and that's a good argument for why Republicans should not have tackled this you know I, I didn't understand why they said I don't know if you remember back in like December Mitch McConnell was saying this is going to be the first thing we do and I'm like what, that the first thing we're going to do is go into Afghanistan. I mean, right, that's basically right, what right. it was, right? I mean, like, maybe why, why not do, you know, uh, tax reform first? And, I mean, they are, you know, they obviously got the uh, Supreme Court nominee, which, which I'm still very happy about. Um, I think you could make a very good argument that they should have let it kind of it, – it's like um, – you know, let, let the fever run its course. And, and the, there was, here's the other thing, too. There was really not a lot of public clamoring for this. I mean, Republicans feel like they have to do it because they've been promising right. to do it for six years. This was not Donald Trump's mandate. Like, no. I don't think people elected Donald Trump no. to repeal and replace Obamacare. In no. fact, in a way, it's off-brand. In a way, Donald Trump is daddy. He's the guy who takes care of you. He's the guy well, who wants everyone well, my care. biggest fear is that the, the compromise, the negotiation that he's open to, ends up with even more government intervention in some form of single payer. I mean, because he appears to philosophically be behind it. He was it. for it at one point. Right. I mean, he definitely right. was for single payer, and, right? And in my sense, and I, you know, I don't feel like I have a hundred percent handle on Trump, but I, I, you know, I don't have a PhD in him yet, but I, I think I might have a some some uh, maybe an undergraduate degree, and. I think that what's driving him mostly on Obamacare is that he said it so often on the campaign trail, he feels like he needs to fulfill his promise. I, and that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, even though it's a really bad idea, and I'm, I'm totally with you that the best scenario here, uh, politically as well as from a policy standpoint in the short run, is for this thing to die ideally in the Senate. Now, uh, let's go back to this. I think if I were advising Trump, and like in all sincerity, like if I really liked Trump and I was really advising him, I would say you don't want this. Right. This is not this is not your move. In fact, maybe you need to find a way to go after Paul Ryan 
well, and to like and, and to distance yourself from him. Well, certainly, if you believe that Breitbart is the voice box of Steve Bannon, although there's some debate <laughs> over that, uh, Breitbart has been going after Paul Ryan on this already uh, in yeah. in very dramatic ways, which is really quite remarkable considering the fact that Trump, at least so far, is wholeheartedly behind the bill. But I want to talk about a couple broad strokes in the remaining moments that we have with you, Matt. We've already alluded to this this definition of conservatism, which you and I grew up thinking we knew pretty much exactly what it was. And now I have no idea. I literally have no idea what it means to be a conservative anymore. What is your current definition of conservatism? Well, for me, it's about conserving those good things about America and Western civilization, including things like the Constitution and the rule of law. Um, But the problem is that, you know, conservatism is a relative thing, and American conservatism is different to a certain degree from European conservatism. Um, So, you know, I think it's about valuing things like tradition and experience and um, it's also a philosophy that's that's not utopian. Um, you know, we don't really we're uh, it's, it's David Brooks calls it epistemological modesty, where we realize that the world is very complex. Um, so you know, the uh, sort of utopian ideas and, and comprehensive bills um, just don't work. But that's that's. That's a sort of long answer, and it doesn't really fit on the on a bumper sticker, you know. I mean, when I grew up, it was it was pretty simple. It was, you know, sort of in the Reagan the, right. the Reagan idea for for limited government, strong but I, national defense. Right, but what, but what do you think it is now? What do you think the definition of conservatism is now? I think it's morphed into what we would actually more correctly identify as as nationalism. I mean, I think it's basically our team and our team being white white people, um, you know, who are, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, Christian white people. Um, although it's weird, it's, it's, it, it's really hard to identify because like <laughs> a lot of the big Trump people now are also like gay, you know what I mean? Like, like Milo would be a prime example, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or someone like an Ann Coulter who, um, you know, is, hangs out with like, Matt Drudge, who, right. you know, I'm sure um, has an interesting lifestyle of his own. So it's just, it's <laughs> are you weird. Saying, are you I, saying, I are you saying that you think it. Matt is gay? Cause it's so well, many- no, I don't, I, I don't know, but I think he's I think, like... I think he might be, yeah. Well, <laughs> I think, I don't know, but but I think, I mean, these you know, a lot of these people, like, are, um, they're, they're not, they're not the sort of, like, when I was a kid, there was like a stereotype about like boring Republicans, and they right. were either kind of like country club Republicans, right. or they were Bible thumping, like devout, you know, Christian conservatives. Those were kind of your two flavors, I think, right? And now um, it, it's, it's a much more, you know, the, the term alt conservative, I mean, it's a much more alternative sort right. of thing. See, right to me, now. to me, by the way, with regard to Matt Drudge, I think Matt Drudge and Steve Bannon, um, have similar philosophies, which is not conservative. I think they just love chaos. I think they want to burn the. Yeah. I think they want to burn the whole damn place down. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, Ma- which is the opposite of Burkean conservatism, of course. Right. I mean, Edmund Burke, which a lot of people consider to be the, the father of modern conservatism, 
was about preserving institutions and tradition and a realization that what we have, although it's flawed, where we are in Western civilization was the product of a lot of hard work and effort uh, of rising out of chaos, and that we need to be very careful to preserve it and vigilant in defending it. And that's the opposite of these guys who want to, quote, disrupt Right. Washington and uh, and burn everything down. Well, to me, the definition, the new definition of conservatism, the best I can understand it is whatever the king says it is. Yeah. That's totally. what it is. It's totally, yeah. No, you're right. Trump has the ability to completely redefine what it means, and then the uh, lemmings will follow uh, and call you a rhino or a liberal <laughs> for defending conservative things. But if you just think about the word conservative, I mean, obviously, there are bad things that could be conserved, like there are good things that could be conserved, but it's very obvious if you want to burn everything down, that's not conserving, <laughs> right? right? If you want to burn down America and burn down our institutions and our politics and our media and our rule of law, you are, by definition, not conserving right. those things. Right, Matt, I want to talk to you a little bit about the media and Trump, which is a subject you and I have discussed in, in prior interviews together. Uh, but but specifically with your role as a, a CNN political commentator, and Trump clearly has targeted CNN uh, and calling them fake news. And I don't think that's coincidental because, frankly, I watch CNN way more now than I ever did in the Obama era. Because, in in my view, in the Obama era, like most of the mainstream news media, CNN sat on their hands and and pretended that uh, there you know, nothing ever went wrong. And uh, and now I think they're doing by far the best work. That doesn't mean everything that CNN does is perfect. There's no, no media outlet is perfect. But I think that they that CNN is now currently the most reliable uh, journalistic uh, television news outlet that there is in the era of Trump. And yet he's targeting CNN as fake news. What is your sense and what is the sense of other people at CNN as to why he's targeting CNN? Well, I don't know. Um Look, why would you target CNN and not MSNBC? Like that's that's an interesting question. I do think that it could be um, it could be good for us. Like just like the way, the way that Barack Obama attacked Fox News and like all they did was succeed during you know it go up in ratings during his tenure. So there could be unintended consequences. But um, yeah, I think I think CNN's doing great work, and you know there's some. Real stars there. I mean, you know, Jake Tapper is is a prime example of somebody who I think is just a rock star. Really mm-hmm. has come into his own um, as somebody who calls out both sides and stands up to powerful people. Um, I agree. And you know, Jim Acosta, he was you know called out by name in that press conference, and and I thought he really held his own and stood up. I was very proud. He stood up to the president. And others, um, and didn't back down. And but is there a sense there, Matt, that he's targeting CNN because he's afraid that CNN is on to him, and he needs to discredit CNN the most, especially in the eyes of his cult members, so that to protect his base of support? Because that's my assessment of what's going on here. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm like out of the loop on it. Like I don't, you know, I'm not privy to any business sort of meetings or whatever, but I can just, from my own standpoint, I mean, I think that's a flattering place to be in. Like if, if Trump has decided that you are the, you know, because I I think at the macro level, obviously he wants to do that to the entire 
mainstream media world. He wants to discredit all media. And if you're the one that he's really zeroing in on and targeting for his you know, most vociferous criticism, that's kind of a compliment <laughs> that he's going after you. See, to me, one of the mo- most underrated stories of the Trump administration so far, and this happened a couple of weeks ago, just before the State of the Union address, was that Trump had lunch with a bunch of reporters, including a couple of very prominent CNN guys. I believe Wolf Blitzer and Jake Tapper were part of this, I think. Uh, and it was reported after that lunch that uh, he was now open to uh, immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform. It was, it was portrayed as, oh, my gosh, here we go, gang of eight again. He might even mention it in the speech that night. It got no real mention in the speech. And then the next day, a White House official uh, a, a copped to basically the fact that Trump had lied in an effort to misdirect the media, just to basically fucking with them, frankly, uh, just to make them look bad or to just show them who was boss or whatever it was, that this was all just a lie. And, um, and to me, that was fascinating because it showed really what makes Trump tick, that here's a guy who, if he sees a cookie in front of him, he can't resist eating the cookie, even if he knows that down the road eating the cookie is going to cause him harm. And uh, and that's not exactly what you want in a president of the United States. What did you make of that story? Um, I, I was I'm still confused by it because I don't know how much good it did him. I mean, zero, zero. Yeah, like I don't think it really did him any good, even in the short term. Never mind the long term implications of like misleading people. And I still, you know, look. The White House said that, uh, or you know, that he had sort of trolled them, but I'm not even sure that's true. I wasn't at the meeting, but I, you know, I, I suspect that Donald Trump doesn't really care that much about it. I think he might actually be oh, in favor of it. Oh, no, I agree. Right? I, I so, agree with uh, you Matt, on that. And, and, and that's, you know, so, but the fact that the White House admitted the next day it was a misdirection, that led me to, to believe, and maybe who knows? Maybe they all have but their signals crossed. I don't even know if crossed. I trusted them. Like, maybe well, at I see the what time you're saying. he, you know, right. I mean, so wait a minute. So, so, so to be clear, you're telling the truth all right. you know, so about you're, his position. So hold on a second. Just to be clear, <laughs> your distrust of the White House goes so deep that your view is that Trump was actually telling them the truth and that the White House is claiming that Trump lied because they don't want anyone <laughs> to think that that's the truth. That, I think it's entirely plausible. Wow. Like, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know wow. for sure, but I think like that's at least as plausible wow. as the notion that he invited them all there right. and intentionally misled them. See, I think he was just screwing with them. I, I just yeah, and, who knows? And, and partially because of the fact that it was Blitzer and Tapper. See, I think well, who I, else was there? I mean, it wasn't it like was like Chuck Todd there maybe I, and like yeah. I don't know. That's, See, I think that there is a concerted effort on the part of this White House to plant. Uh, dubious and or fake stories so that they can be, be later discredited in yeah. order to forward this fake news narrative. You no, see- no, I, I, look, I completely agree with you. I got leaked. Um, what was it someone sent me? Someone, oh, it was Gorsuch. It was Gorsuch. So uh, I think it was Ramesh Panura who kind of broke the story. Like, remember for a while there were like two finalists. Uh, right, 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 be- right. 
Yeah, and I think it was Ramesh Panur who kind of uh, at National Review who, who broke the story, like, "Hey, it's going to be Gorsuch, and, and this is good." But earlier that day, it was a reality show thing, right? Final. Yeah, remember? Yeah, they were they were they wanted to sort of hype it, and like they they were allegedly both coming to DC right, and whatnot. Right. But earlier that day, a, a pretty reliable source that I know told me, "Hey, I'm hearing it's Gorsuch," and I like. In the old days, I would have probably written that story. But my thinking was, <laughs> maybe... You're being misled on purpose. I'm being misled on purpose. So then Matt Lewis goes out, right. writes the piece, Interesting. saying, hey, a great, a reliable source tells me it's Gorsuch. And then it ends up being the other guy. Right. And now I look like an idiot. But see, here's, here's what the, Trump doesn't seem to understand, if in fact this is the strategy, and I think it is, is that eventually you're going to need the power of a leak... And if and if no one believes the leak, the power has been taken away. So so absolutely. So so eventually, this is going to come back to haunt them. They don't seem to realize that or care. All right, now Matt, uh, with regard to the conservative media, who is it of all of the conservative media stars that most surprised you with the level to which they were willing to go, uh, you know, neck deep in Trumperism and and basically decide that their principles be damned, whatever the king says is true. Who, who would you say surprised you the most? Wow, that's a, gr- that's a good question. That is a really good question. Um, to me, it was Mark Levin, and I wrote a column this week uh, yeah. for, for, for Mediaite that Mark Levin, uh, who has, has never been 100% in, but to me, uh, based upon who he is, that was the one that shocked me the most because I always felt like he was as legitimate and authentic as anybody. And this most recent episode, which I wrote about, and people can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, where he's basically trying to substantiate uh, Trump's claim of being wiretapped by Obama, uh, which is not even what Levin originally said, which was apparently the basis for, for Trump's, or at least part of the basis for Trump's tweet, is just flat-out ridiculous to me. But I'm curious, is, is there anybody else that you can think of that, that would fit into that category? Uh, no, you know, I, just, I, I can't think of one example. Well, let me um, ask you about somebody in particular. Okay. You, you used to work for The Daily Caller. Yes. How surprised, run by Tucker Carlson, a guy, I, I, I also work briefly for the Daily Caller, and I know Tucker a little bit, not nearly as well as you do. I know you like Tucker. How's, I love him. He's a great guy. Right. How surprised are you that Tucker Carlson has gone full on Trump and been, and, and been <laughs> I'm not rewarded surprised greatly? At all. I'm not surprised at all because in the case of Tucker, it's, actually, it's very sincere. He has, um, you know, about... Twenty years ago, Tucker wrote a um, really brilliant piece. And by the way, people don't realize what a good writer he is. Um, about twenty years ago, he wrote a, a brilliant piece in the Wall Street Journal, advocating for more immigration and, and talking about how you know opponents of immigration are uh, you know basically come you know, come from pretty unseemly. <laughs> You know, places like radical environmentalists and Malthusians and and uh, and, and people who are pro you know who, who are pro abortion because they want to they're worried about population control. Um, and he wrote this. So so he there's no doubt that he has changed, but that change actually was organic, and it's not a product of trying to um, suck up to Trump or capitalize on 
the Trump um, zeitgeist, for lack of a better word. This is actually a direction that he's been moving in for years. So I think it's sincere. Well, he has become, you know, Tucker used to be kind of a libertarian. He's become kind of a populist, nationalist guy, um, okay. which I don't agree with on the merits, but it's not like a lot of the other people who conveniently uh, um, switched and became be Trumpian. Matt, because you know him better than me and because, you know, I trust your judgment, I'll take your word for it on that. But here's here's what bothers If you have a change in your philosophy and you no longer believe in conservatism, fine. Um, I, I don't know that I buy what you're saying because he made some rather uh, negative comments about Trump before anyone thought Trump was going to be the nominee or the president. Uh, and, and, the, and the timing seems rather coincidental. But here's the part that offends me most about, and let's take Tucker out of this in particular, just in general, the conservative media stars who have jumped on the Trump bandwagon. It's, it's one thing for you to buy into whatever the hell his philosophy is, and I don't know what it is really, but let's call it nationalism for, for lack of a better term. What really offends me is that whatever Trump says is the truth, that's the part about about anything, regardless of whether it's about policy, that, that because Trump said it, it must be true, even when it's obviously totally false. That's the yeah. part that offends me most. It's not the I agree with him on this issue or that issue. It's the, the idea that the king has spoken. Therefore, we must support the king. Well, I think I think the thing that's interesting is that there's a. There's a strain of conservatism that is very anti-authoritarian, right? So rugged individualism is not about falling in line and bowing to the king. And my, you, know, you and I, we are of the school of conservatism that is, a, that is very, we question authority. We, um, we, we don't, you know, we're, we're, we're basically, we're basically anti-authoritarian. But there has always been a strain on the right that was authoritarian. And it's a much bigger strain than I thought existed. Um, but it has sort of always been there. And, you know, and in fact, some of them are still like monarchists or minarchists, whatever the hell mm -hmm. that means. Um, <laughs> and so really within the conservative movement, there has like always been um, some of us who were like, question authority, very individualistic, very worried about strong men. Um, obviously, that part of that speaks to the anti-communist thing. But there has always been all, uh, a different strain that, um, that loved um, authority mm. and, and bowed to it. And mm. I think that, that, that what's happened is that that sort of was dormant for mm. a long time. Right. And that it's it's coming. It's I never I never I never realized that. But there was a lot of things yeah. I never realized about so-called conservatives that I've learned in the last uh, year and a half. There's no doubt about that. Last thing, Matt. Now, one of the things that has been an interesting phenomenon with this sellout among the the right wing stars, which I believe and have written extensively about, and I know you've talked about it as well, it was mostly motivated by ratings and and fame. Uh, which are you know big motivators for people in the media. That's about all that they care about is, is ratings and fame. Um, but what was also is under talked about, and even I have not done enough to to expose this, 
is that if you look at the right wing media as a uh, as a pyramid or a totem pole or something like that, you have at the top you have your Hannitys, your Rushes, your O'Reillys, your I guess now Tucker Carlson's, your Matt Drudges, those type of people. But there's then several layers underneath that, and those people have been incredibly hesitant, other than stupid people like me, to call out those at the top of the totem pole for their sellout. And that has been, in my view, because this is all a big game. See, the second and third rungs of the totem pole, they suck up to the people at the top because they want to be on their shows and they want to be able to be retweeted by those people at the top. And so a lot of their uh, business or their career is attached to the people at the top of the totem pole, and so therefore no one wants to call anyone out, and therefore there's no accountability, and therefore anyone on the right can sell out whatever they want, and and most, the vast majority of the audience has no idea because no one with access to that audience, even a little fragment of it, is willing to tell the truth about them. Am I right about that assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's kind of how it works, and... If you, you know, it's like the whole, you'll never have lunch in this town again <laughs> phenomenon. Like, if you want to go on O'Reilly or Hannity, you had better never say anything bad about them. And it sort of makes sense. I mean, if you're them, why would they put you on if you're criticizing them? I get, I get where they're coming from, too. But that's the game. You know, about five, year, five or six years ago, I, uh, I caught out Michelle Malkin for something, and... It got ugly, and, and it wasn't just Malkin, it was her minions who came after me. Like, all these people on Twitter who were devoted, loyal fans of hers started coming after me pretty brutally. So there's, you know, if, if you dare to call somebody out, then there'll be a price to pay. Maybe you don't get invited on the TV show. Maybe, um, maybe you don't get retweeted, or maybe they come after you and start calling you a a conservative for a rhino. Right. Well, well, Matt, that's why I love you. Uh, you you're honest about all this, and I, I really appreciate your insight. And I really appreciate you coming on. It was a, it was a really interesting conversation. And uh, people can uh, read you at the Daily Beast, see you on CNN, and your book, Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections. Boy, wasn't that prescient. Uh, uh, <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> yes. Uh, Matt, always great to talk to you, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, John. All right, that's uh, Matt Lewis. Another great conversation in hour number two of the uh, World According to Zig uh, podcast. Uh, um, by the way, for those of you who um, missed it, uh, the uh, the guest that I wasn't planning on having for hour number two this week, uh, I explained that whole story in hour number one of this week's podcast. So make sure you check that out. Uh, very much uh, looking forward to next week where we'll have another really good guest, I hope, I plan, uh, on the World According to Zig podcast. And as always, I, I ask only two things of you. Just, if you like the podcast, share it, tweet it, retweet it, Facebook share it, whatever it is, just let other people know about it because that's really the only way uh, that people will hear what we think is an important truth about what's going on in America. And the second is, you know, if you're one of those people who sleeps at night and you use sheets when you sleep, do yourself a favor and listen to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. 
These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.